0: Welcome to the Teaching with Inquiry live podcast replay, fitting it all together to make inquiry-based learning accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. Today starts week four of our summer literacy series, and it's the last week of our summer literacy series. So thank you so much for joining me all month long as we have been delving in a little bit deeper into what language arts looks like in the junior grades. This week, we're talking about assessment. And today, I specifically wanted to talk about assessment And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge your thinking on what assessment is and what assessment can look like. So if you are new to the show, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Patty, and I am a teacher here in Ontario, Canada. And every single Monday night, I put out a new video for junior grade teachers talking about all things teaching, including teaching a split, using inquiry-based learning as differentiation, and all things teaching and learning that affect classroom teachers today in the classroom. So we're talking about literacy. Now, I want you to reflect a little bit on your own experiences as a student. This shapes how we assess as teachers. Now, in tonight's video, I'm really going to try to push you to change your conception about what assessment can look like in the classroom. In general, I want you to think of assessment a little bit differently. I want you to remember that assessment needs to be simple. As teachers, there are so many things that are going on in our classroom. If we get bogged down in the itty-bitty details that assessment can sometimes get us to focus on, then sometimes we miss opportunities for assessment, which in fact make looking at assessing student learning a lot easier if we focus on the forest instead of the trees. So that's what I'm going to get you to be thinking about in this video. So much of our time as teachers, as well as our experiences ourselves as a student, has been all tied and focused to a culminating activity, project, or test. And for the majority of us, we have seen these as these products must be exactly the same from student to student in order for us to be able to accurately evaluate a student's progress or mastery of the skill that we were trying to assess. We get stuck sometimes on that thinking that assessment is of a product. We need to start thinking instead of assessment as a product, instead of assessment of skills. Now, our curriculum gives us the skills and learnings that our students need to achieve by the end of the grade level. Now, I'm going to ask you if every teacher in your province does the exact same activity to assess each one of those expectations. They don't. Yet, we're all able to come up with accurate assessment pieces that allow us to determine whether or not learning has occurred. If every teacher across the province of Ontario can design different activities that allow their students to demonstrate the same set of skills by the end of the grade level, then even within our own classroom, if we focus on the skills and not so much on the perfect project or test or activity that we can design, then assessment becomes a little bit easier because it means that not every student needs to have the exact same activity in order for us to be able to assess their learning. And even more so, it means that we don't have to have an assessment rubric, or evaluation criteria for every separate product that a student produces. Instead, our assessment materials, our rubrics, our tests, our assignments can all be based on a broad ability of our students to demonstrate a set of skills instead of them being able to produce a specific project. By focusing on the skills our students demonstrate, instead of focusing on the products they produce, we automatically open up the avenues for assessment to our students and differentiate the pathways for them to be successful. Not every student is going to perform at their best on one type of assessment. We know that we want multiple opportunities for assessment. We know that we want different types of things that students can do. But there's lots of different ways that students can show us what they know without us being very rigid on exactly what they produce for us. So my challenge for you when it comes to assessment is to think and focus on the skills you're looking for instead of focusing on the product that the student produces. And that multiple products can be examples of the skills you're really trying to evaluate. And when we focus on that, we can really hone in and simplify our overall assessment of all of our students, regardless of what level they might be coming into us at or what their strengths and needs are as individuals in our classroom. So often I am asked how I assess different things in language arts and whether or not I have rubrics for every different type of project, especially when I'm spiraling. So I might have some students writing letters, other students writing stories, some students writing reports, and other students writing biographies, all at the same time. So the question I often get is, well, do you have a rubric for each one of those? No, but I focus on the curriculum expectations. Now you can try, you can go ahead and dig into your curriculum expectations and I want you to count. I want you to go through your curriculum expectations and count how many expectations in writing are related specifically to the genre that your students are going to write in. Two. Out of all of the expectations in the writing curriculum here in Ontario, there are only two expectations that talk about specific writing forms and genres. And only one suggests different genres that we might want to have students cover to meet the actual language of the expectation. Yet, there are way more expectations in the language curriculum that relate to word choice, voice, the writing process. There are four sections in the Ontario Writing Curriculum. The first is about developing and organizing the content that they're writing, not specifically about all of the genres and forms, except most of them are about organizing and classifying ideas. In the second section of the Writing Curriculum, it is about our knowledge of form and style One expectation is about form, the rest are about style. The remaining expectations are about conventions and writing skills. So with the majority of our expectations in writing being about the skills of a writer and not being specifically tied to the different genres or forms of writing that are suggested at each grade level, then for me, that means the majority of my time spent teaching is going to be on designing activities that will hit those expectations with any writing form that students choose. Yes, in my classroom, we go over all of those forms that are mentioned as suggestions in the curriculum. We talk about what is part of those forms. And the thing is, is that when we talk about it, students try it. Those forms are what make up my writing choice boards. Students will choose different forms of writing that are from the curriculum, but they're on the choice board. So there is a framework for students to choose to be able to hit those two specific expectations. However, since some of the expectations are all around organizing and classifying ideas, those skills can actually be brought out in a variety of different writing forms. So if I am specifically looking at a student's ability to gather, organize, and classify ideas, they can actually do that whether they are writing a report or they are writing a story. Yes, their ability to classify the ideas is going to look slightly differently depending on what they hand in to me. But my ability as a teacher to evaluate whether or not they are able to organize and classify their ideas for the form of writing that they have chosen, I am able to assess both student A who writes a story and student B who writes a report based on those specific skills, because those are the skills I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking for the product as evidence of them being able to do that. On top of that, My assessment comes from three different categories, my observations that occur within my student writing conferences, which provide me a wealth of information about where students are right now and where they're going. We track those on a writing feedback form so that students know what they were strong at working on, what they need to work on next. We focus on goals as the cycle of assessment includes feedback and goal setting and then evaluation of those goals. So using a goal board where students are specifically looking at skills on that goal board written in student-friendly language, but those goals reflect the curriculum expectations So when they're choosing those goals, they're choosing curriculum expectations that they want to work on, things that I can then evaluate. When I have to sit down to write those report cards Having access to these feedback forms, which are written records of my student-teacher conferences, my observations, as well as my conversations with students about their writing, gives me a wealth of information. They're writing more. They're engaged in what they're writing. So I am able to gather a tremendous amount more and a much better understanding of their individual skills as writers than I ever did when I was focused on I'm going to write a biography unit, and then we're going to write a fairy tale unit, and then we're going to write a letter unit. I didn't get to see students growing as writers. I didn't really get to see what they were strong at, what their needs were, and how we could push each individual student to meet their specific individual needs. And that's one of the keys. Now, they would produce products. And I have to say, when students are handing in a piece of writing... It is pretty quick to be able to tell whether or not that student is writing at above or below grade level, especially when you have access to using different anchors such as the Ontario Writing Assessment or even using EQAO anchor answers to allow you to get a better idea of what writing looks like in your grade level. After you've taught that grade for a while, you get a better understanding of what good quality work looks like at that grade level. So when a student hands in, whether it's a story, a report, biography, or a letter, you can look at their complexity of ideas their ability to organize, their voice shining through as a writer. You can look at their word choice and sentence complexity, whether or not they're using dialogue and narration and description, whether they're not using much of any of that, whether it's simple or complex, it is a, you're able to see their skills as a writer when we focus on the curriculum expectations as our checklist as to what they're doing, instead of focusing on, are they able to write a biography? So that is one of the ways that I am able to assess writing. I find it easier to assess this way. I get so much more data this way. And when I have data when I have lots of information, it is a lot easier to be able to determine a student's success and their mark because I have such a wealth of information in front of me in which to determine a mark for their final report card mark. The other area that I get a lot of questions about when it comes to assessment are things like reading response and comprehension. Now, comprehension strategies are listed in the reading for meaning expectation here in the Ontario curriculum. And it talks about all of the comprehension strategies that students would use to understand a text from determining importance to making connections, making inferences, analyzing and evaluating texts, as well as looking at point of view. Now, let's think of what we do as good readers. I would hazard to guess that as teachers, most of us could be grouped into the category of pretty good or strong readers. What do we do naturally as readers? Well, we use a variety of those comprehension strategies, often without thinking, but we use them interchangeably all the time. So it's really unrealistic to think that students are going to be Using comprehension strategies only one when they're reading. So if we focus on six weeks of making connections, what if they're not making a connection to that story? What if they have to infer? Because in order to make a connection, they have to have a lot of background experience. But if they don't have any background experience, it's going to be really hard for them to make a connection, but they might be able to make inferences. They might be able to evaluate or look at point of view instead of making connections. Versus other students that can so deeply connect to the texts that we read, maybe their strength isn't on focusing on inferencing because their connections are so strong with the text that's being read, they're not needing to guess because they feel it in themselves that they already know the answer because they've lived it and it's part of their experience. Our students do not come to us all with the same lived experiences. So we can't expect when they're reading to only react the same way perhaps we did when we were planning which comprehension strategies we were going to be focusing on. So for that reason, when I'm teaching reading, whether it is comprehension of oral texts that I'm reading in a read aloud or a shared reading or whether or not it's looking at comprehension during guided reading and independent reading for I'm reading I'm assessing their actual reading comprehension skills so their ability to understand when they read I want to have flexibility in which reading strategy fits best for that student at that time with that text So it means for me as a teacher that I need to be able to be flexible and use a variety, model a variety of think aloud strategies as those different comprehension strategies come up for me. We need to talk about them. We need to develop them constantly over time. But when it comes for students to demonstrate their understanding, I want to give them a choice as to what kinds of questions they're going to be answering. If the only questions I am giving my students are based on connections, well, it's no wonder that maybe a third of my class who has no background experience similar to the main character might be able to make a connection to that. So if I limit the types of questions I'm asking for them to respond to that I'm limiting their success, or I'm just simply not making the learning accessible for a third of my classroom. And there's also some implicit bias there where you could be looking at a text yourself from your own lived experiences and then project that your students must also have similar lived experiences to you. And maybe they don't. So for that reason, I focus on when I'm evaluating, I allow my students to respond to a choice of questions. Questions that allow them to talk about the inferences they made in the text, questions that talk about predictions they could make, questions they could analyze, evaluate, compare and contrast, predict, make connections, all of them. They have choices in terms of the questions they answer. Now, for many teachers, you're like, oh, goodness, if I have nine different questions, does that mean I need nine different rubrics? No, it means you need to be able to track the student's demonstration of different skills. So if students are relying really heavily on making predictions, then we need to push them to making some other things, other types of comprehension skills and that can be pushed into our think-alouds when we are modeling. We model the deficit comprehension strategies that our students are showing us. But it means we track the questions they're answering. So simply looking at can they demonstrate comprehension? So which question did they answer? So let's say you've got your MarkBook in front of you. And Johnny answered the making inferences question. In your mark book, you can have two columns. Column 1 can let you know what type of question he answered. Column 2 can evaluate the quality of his response. Did he show an understanding of the text? Did his response show his depth of understanding? Was he able to relate his own experiences and his own ideas and opinions back to the text? And was he able to support his opinions with details from the text or even his own experiences or other texts around him? But we should be tracking which skills they're working on and then from there be responsive in our teaching to when we are conducting a read aloud focusing on which comprehension strategy we need to spend more time on modeling so that students can become better practicers of that skill. It is also a focus, again, when we do guided reading, where we can group our students based on comprehension skills that they need to develop, and we can focus on those specific skills when we are meeting with our students in small groups. Assessment is about data collection. And then how we respond to that data collection. But it doesn't mean that we need to focus again on the specific product that they produce. Instead, we can focus on the skills they show us and then react to those skills as teachers to push them to develop the other skills in a checklist that we are supposed to complete. That's one of the reasons why in my literacy series, every week contains assessment checklists that contain the expectations that are being met with that week's lesson and spaces for you to record the student's ability to demonstrate that that expectation. It doesn't focus on the product that the students are able to do. It focuses on the expectations that you are looking for mastery of. And from there, the students that are not mastering that skill, that becomes a focus for your teacher conferences and your guided reading, as well as your modeled and shared activities. And when your students are demonstrating mastery, those students can move on to other skills and other goal areas. Now, because my literacy program is spiraled, this is something that constantly happens. And we look for small, incremental improvements every single week and we don't look for complete and full mastery of all of the expectations until the end of the year giving our students time to develop those skills is key now i will say the downside to this is in around october and november maybe even in december it feeling stressful Because students are not looking like they're progressing quite as much as perhaps they did in previous ways that you may have taught literacy. Because you would have done six-week cycles or eight-week cycles of a lesson and then looked for summative evaluation and then never touched that topic again. Instead, in spiraled instruction, it's going to be a slow burn. By about February, you've probably now at that point surpassed where you normally would, and from February to June, you are really looking at the amount of growth, the immense amount of growth that students can and do grow in their language, ability, in that second half because they've taken their time to really struggle through some concepts and really build their growth mindset and their ability to persevere and show their grit and determination because they buy into what they're doing because they have an immense amount of choice in what they're doing. So my challenge for you is to rethink assessment. Focus on assessment of skills and those skills are related to the curriculum expectation instead of focusing on the specific projects that your students are able to produce for you. We want open-ended, we want student choice, and we want easy to differentiate so that we can meet the many needs that are in our classrooms. So there's going to be a lot more videos on assessment. We're going to get more specific on how to assess both reading and writing in your literacy classroom. This week I have new videos or old videos coming to you that I have done. And then I will remember this Friday, I forgot last Friday, but this Friday I know it's so important for you to be able to ask your questions about assessment. So we will have a Q&A session this Friday in the Teaching with Madly Learning Facebook group all about assessment with literacy. My master class is open. How to plan and schedule your language arts that allows you to fit it all together and stop the overwhelm and stress and wondering where to start. There are four times available next Tuesday and Wednesday for these masterclass. You only need to sign up for one, but they are open now. So you can go ahead and Enter your name and your email and sign up for one of those four masterclass sessions. They're all live with me, and we are going to dig in how to plan and schedule your highly effective language arts program so that you are good to go in the fall. And if you are ready to sign up for that, I want you to head on over to www.ignitedliteracy.com, and you will see those four Times for you to sign up. Just click the button, enter your info, and you will get a confirmation from Zoom letting you know that you are all registered. And that's all you need to do. And I will send you some reminder emails along the way to make sure that you don't forget that you signed up for the masterclass. And I can't wait to see each and every one of you in those masterclasses where we can really dig in in detail. I have so many good things planned for you. I am literally going to walk you through step-by-step-by-step my exact process for how I plan an entire week of a literacy learning for my students. We're going to talk about what your literacy block looks like all 100 minutes and even how you can modify that if you've got more or less time, including my friends that are teaching core English. We'll cover that too. And we're also going to talk about the most important strategies that every teacher must include in their language program if you want to be able to reach and teach your students. So I can't wait for you to join me. Again, that's www.ignitedliteracy.com to go ahead and sign up for one of the four scheduled master classes next week. Thank you so much for joining me. And I can't wait to continue this conversation all about assessment. As always, if you have any questions, ask in the group and I'll make sure that I answer those as promptly as I can. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Inquiry Live podcast replay. You can find the links, resources, and more information from today's episode at www.teachingwithinquiry.com. Don't forget, you can always catch this show live on Facebook every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Madly Learning Facebook page. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Inquiry Live.